Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. So a few little just things that we do know about Simon. First of all, we've seen already how many of the apostles go by more than one name. And Simon, uh, as in a lot of things, a man of extremes, he had to have four names. So uh, he's known as Simeon. His name is actually Simeon. So of the tribes of Israel, he's named after Simeon. That's the Hebrew. The Greek version of that name, Simeon, is Simon. And that's where we get the Simon name Greek, uh, the Greek name Simon. And that's why throughout the, the Gospels, which are written mostly in Greek, um, they're using the name Simon for him. But we also know that Jesus renames him Cephas. Now that's Aramaic, which is what Jesus probably spoke with the apostles in. Um, and so want, John even is clear that when Jesus renames Jesus, uh, when Jesus renames Peter, rather, what he renames him is Cephas, which is Aramaic for rock. However, when this is translated into the Greek text in the other three gospels, they use the Greek version of this name, which is Petra or Petros, which is Peter, which is Greek. So he is uh, Simeon, Simon, Cephas, Peter, Johnson. Uh, The reason I say he's Johnson is because in fact, at one point he is referred to as son of John. And the names, by the way, in case you weren't aware of it, names like Johnson uh, literally come from the long derivative of being being named after your father. So it was son of John. So he is Simon the Rock Johnson. Uh, Most of you know that story about the rock. We'll get there, why he's called the rock. That's actually what we're going to talk about today. It's important. What else do we know? Well, there's a number of things we've already learned, even just from the stories we've already looked at in some of the other callings. We know that he was a fisherman. We know that he was a fisherman with his brother Andrew, and that he also had a partnership with James and John. So they kind of had this, this fishing conglomeration that they did. So we know that's what he did. We know that Peter is originally from Bethsaida, um, but he moved to Capernaum um, because we know he moved to Capernaum because at one point uh, Jesus actually heals Peter's mother-in-law in in Capernaum. Um, And so also the fact that he has a mother-in-law as well as another passage which makes it clear uh, tells us that Peter was married. Um, Now, we don't hear much about his wife, except that Paul does mention at a later point, lest you're concerned that she was incredibly neglected. Paul mentions later in another point that she actually went on mission trips with Peter, that Peter took his wife with him. Paul says, aren't we allowed to do that? Shouldn't we be allowed to do that? The answer being yes, and the implication being that Peter already was doing that. Um, So he's married, and she went on uh, mission trips with him. So these these are some of the things we know. Uh, about Peter just off the bat. Now, Peter gets a lot of text. Peter gets a lot of press. Peter uh, is very important in the Gospels. And there's a lot of reasons for this. One is he's a very important member of the church. He's a very important founder of the church. He ends up being really important throughout the book of Acts. He's referred to as one of the pillars of the church at one point. Um, He is the person that Paul goes to to sort of get permission Uh, When Paul converts, um, he kind of runs it by Peter because Peter is a really important figure. Throughout the Gospels, Peter seems to have a kind of a leadership role among the apostles. Um, And he's that kind of figure. And and Peter is a very complicated, complex person, in fact. And we're going to talk about a lot more of that in the coming week or weeks. I don't know if we're going to do two or three weeks. We'll see how my preparation for next week goes. Um, But we're going to at least do another week to talk extensively about who Peter is a little bit more. Um, I think the thing about Peter is he's very easy to pick on and he's, he's very easy to sort of get a, a, a feeling for precisely because he seems, among other things, to just be very unafraid of what other people think. He's just very authentic. And so he says what he's thinking, even if what he's thinking is going to get him in trouble two minutes later. And even if he said it before and it got him in trouble, and even if he knows that if he keeps saying it, it's going to keep getting him in trouble, he just seems to just not be terribly concerned about it. This is, in fact, what is so surprising about his denial of, P- of Jesus, which we'll definitely talk about at the end, is that it's a rare moment for Peter where he actually seems to be intimidated by anyone or anything. Um, and it does happen to him, but, the, but it's, a, it's unusual for him. The rest of the time, he says stupid things. He says smart things. He does stupid things. He does smart things. He's one of the most devoted 
uh, members of Jesus. He gives more effusive praise and declarations of devotion, which I think come from complete sincerity. He also is the one who argues more with Peter than anybody else in the Gospels. And that's just who he is. I mean, argues with Jesus. He probably does argue with himself too, but I meant he argues with Jesus more than anyone else in the Gospels. Again, we'll talk about all that in coming weeks. Um, What I want to talk about tonight is really just one passage. And it is the passage that comes into this fact that he's called by Jesus, Cephas or Petra, the rock. And as interesting as this passage is, as fundamental as this passage is, as important as this passage seems to be, it's one of those passages where uh, large segments of the church have very, very strenuous disagreement with each other about this passage that it takes on importance that goes even beyond what we see here. Um, And I'm not going to get into all the details of that, but I do want to touch on it because I think there is a really important lesson here for us. So let's look at this. This is Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. It says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say... I am. Now this is interesting because the first and second question may not have immediately sounded the same to them. The first question he asks is, who do people say the son of man is? Which could have meant, literally he might have been asking them, in the theological discussions out there, who are people identifying as the Messiah? And they say, well, John the Baptist or Elijah, maybe it's Jeremiah. Now he might have said that knowing that they already thought he was the Messiah. So he might have been saying, who do they say I am? But it's not entirely clear. So first he asks this sort of general theological question, which frankly makes more sense because it's a little bit hard for me to fathom that people thought that Jesus was John the Baptist, given that they were alive at the same time. And that would have been a complicated trick to pull off. Um, so, so I think he might just be saying, who, who, do they, who are people identifying as the Messiah? And then he says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah the son of the living God. You are the son of man, right? You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, or son of John, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. Um, It's an interesting statement. It depends on how early this story actually takes place. The gospels are not in, it's not completely clear chronologically where this story happens. Um, If it's late, then Jesus has already told them several times he's the Messiah. So it's interesting to say this was not revealed to you by man, but it could mean that because they have a hard time picking up on some things that he says very clearly. And he's just saying it took God's insight for you to see this finally. And he goes on. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter. So right after calling him Simon, he says, you are Cephas, probably is what he actually said, meaning the rock. Translated here into Greek, because this is written in Greek, you are Peter, and on this rock. So he essentially says, you are Peter and on this Peter, or you are rock and on this rock. I will build my church. Now there's some discussion about those two words not being entirely the same, and they're not. The two terms for rock here are slightly different. I'm not going to get into details. It's it's kind of a hair-splitting argument. I think the reality is they're only different because the word for rock tends to be feminine, and when when the uh, Matthew translates it into Peter's name, he doesn't want to give Peter, a feminine name, so he uses the masculine version. I think that's really the only reason there's a distinction here. But the point is, it doesn't matter. There's clearly wordplay going on here. All right? I love the fact that God apparently is not a scorner of puns. The Psalms are filled with them. And even right here, Jesus is using one at a really important moment. I'm going to call you the rock because on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of death The gates of death. Hades could be hell. I think in a lot of ways it just means death here, which is really important. The gates of death will not overcome it. It won't just disappear. It won't die. My church is going to survive. It's going to persist. It's going to outlast. Now, it could mean hell, and that also is important. The demons and the the spiritual forces are not going to defeat the church. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That's a pretty big deal, right? I mean, when you're young and your dad gives you the keys to the car, that's like, wow, he's going to trust me with his car. Well, this is a big trust. I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Whatever is happening here 
This is a big deal. It's a little hard to understand because it's too big a deal in some ways, right? So the first thing I want to point out is this conversation seems to be a private conversation between Peter and Jesus. That isn't to say the other apostles aren't there. They might be, they might not be. They might be paying attention. They might not be paying attention. It could be that when Jesus said what he said, or when Peter said what he said about you being the Messiah, that Jesus just answered him directly and the others were off doing their own thing. It's not clear. What we do know is the you here is singular. So one of the things that's interesting about the Greek text is that the word you can be either plural or singular. And so whenever Paul or Peter or Jesus are talking to groups of people and they use the word you, they say the plural you. It would be like us saying, well, some of our neighbors saying y'all. Or in New Mexico, we say you guys, right? And what we mean by that is all of you. And so what he says here is not, I will give all of you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever all of you bound will be bound in heaven. He seems to say it to Peter, which is where the debate begins to come in. What is happening here? What is Jesus doing? And what is he saying? He goes on and he says, I tell you, he says, uh, then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Let's leave that. That is also confusing at this moment. Who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? You're the Messiah. Good. Shh. That's fantastic, but shh, don't tell anyone. We'll come back to that. But what's happening here? So there's a lot of discussion. Like I said, there's a lot of debate, but basically we come down to two key questions. And again, I don't want to get into all of that. We could really get in the weeds. There's so much argument about this. If you're the kind of person who's fascinated, really wants to explore it, by all means do. Just grab some commentaries on Matthew 16, start working your way through them, but don't stop at the first one or two because there's a ton of ideas here. And they're not all without agenda or bias, and that's the difficulty. But here's the questions. Number one, what or who is the rock? When he says, upon this rock, I will build my church, does he mean Peter? He says, you're the rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. Does he mean Peter is the rock upon which the church will be built? That's a, an important, that may not sound like an important question. It turns out to be a really important question. The second question is similar. What are the keys of the kingdom, and who receives them? Again, this is a singular statement, in the singular form, is he saying this to Peter? One way to read the text is very simply to say that Peter is the rock upon whom the church will be founded, and Peter is granted the keys of the kingdom, a certain sort of authority to the church. And that really is what these questions tie upon, is question of foundation and authority. When you look at the church, where's the foundation and where's the authority? These questions are even more important and fascinating because Jesus actually uses a word here for, as far as we know, the first time. And that word is church. It's not before now, Jesus has never sort of referred to what's coming as this thing that we know of as the church. Jesus is talking about an organization, a, a structure that's going to come together to reflect him. And he talks about it in these big terms of keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now the word church itself is not a spiritual word. It's literally the word ecclesia, which means assembly. That's all it means. An assembly with a purpose, not just sort of a mob, right? The difference between a mob and a, and a meeting. <laughs> the difference between a mob and an organization or a mob and a community. It's not just a group of people, but it is an assembly with a purpose, usually and often some kind of structure. But beyond that, it doesn't necessarily mean it's holy or sacred, but Jesus is referring to the idea that there will be an assembling of followers beyond these 12. He's, he's hinting at what's to come, something we know, but they could only begin to possibly understand. That what's coming is gonna be an assembly, a community of people who will be following me, and it will be a community of purpose, and it will be a community which continues in perpetuity. The gates of death, the gates of hell will not overcome it. It will be preserved. And in this important community of Jesus, he says, upon this rock, I will build my church and I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And what does this mean? Well, so here's the thing. Here's, let, me just, let me just explain to you why this is such a big deal and why this becomes important. For the Catholics, the reading of this text is clear. And to their credit, it's not a stretch. If you read this at the way that, that perhaps to you looks most simple and, and clear, he says, 
Peter's called the rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Peter's the foundation. He then goes on to say, I give you, Peter, authority to the kingdom of heaven. The reason this is important to Catholics is that Catholics believe that this is the beginning of the papal system, the beginning of the popes. And they believe Peter was the first pope. This is therefore a very important discussion for them. And they defend the idea that Peter is the rock upon which the church is built because to let that go is to let go of a very important part of the structure to which they're used. From the other end, Protestants read this and because there is such pressure on it to mean that the papal system is in existence, the Protestants then are sort of forced to defend very vigorously the idea that he can't be saying that Peter is the foundation and authority for the coming church. And so what happens is you have people who are clear-headed and theological who come to this passage not objectively. Do you see that? They come with an agenda to defend, which is not wrong, but it's important to understand that's what happens. Now, you all know whether I'm Protestant or Catholic. <laughs> you all know where my position is going to come. But what I'd like to do is try as much as we can, as we always try to do, to see what the text tells us. To look at the text in the context of Scripture and in the context of things we understand and see what we can glean from it without immediately feeling the need to defend our particular system as we understand it. We'll do our best. We won't succeed entirely, but we'll do our best. All right, fair enough? Okay. So we start with one thing. So let's, let's start, in fact, by looking at the idea that Jesus is speaking to Peter. Because one of my questions would be, as a, as a Protestant, as an evangelical or post-evangelical, I don't even know what we are, but we're not Catholic. As a Protestant, one of the things that, that, that I want to do is I want to ask the question, is it possible to see the text as saying that Peter is the founder and authority of, of the church in some fashion without it undermining the idea that we do not operate under a papal system? Does one necessarily lead to the other? Um, so let's, let's just see, because the text does appear to say that. Just taken what we've seen so far, there's no reason to think he isn't saying to Peter, upon you I will build my church, and you are being given some special authority. So let's see if there's any indication of that, that that's what Jesus meant. And the first thing we do is we can go and look at the book of Acts, and we can see the foundation of the church, and we can ask ourselves, where does Peter play a role in this? And does it line up with these words that Jesus gave? So what happens is we come to uh, Acts chapter 2, and it starts by saying, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, they being the church, the churches that currently exist. All the disciples, all the people who are following Jesus are all together in one place. Why is that? Well, it's because Pentecost is already a festival that would have brought Jews from all over the world together in order to celebrate a feast. It's a holy day. We're, we're coming upon an important holy day, the Festival of Weeks, and we're here. And because of that, they're all together. And it says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying, now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly the amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. So clearly you've got people who are, I, you really have to picture this. This is an amazing moment. I don't know where you sit in, in all sorts of things, but scripture is filled with supernatural things. If you don't believe that, you have a problem because the resurrection is a supernatural thing. And one of these amazing supernatural events is the, the disciples are all together in one place and suddenly there's fire all over. 
little, little, little tongues of fire over all of their heads. And they all start praising God. And it's almost like without even knowing it, as they're praising God, they're praising God in other actual languages. Lots of discussion could be out on what tongues is throughout the rest of scripture. Here it's clear it's other actual languages. And as they're speaking, as they're praying, the people are hearing them. They're from all over and they're like, how are they praying in my language? That's so weird. That's so strange. How can that be? But not everybody hears it, right? There's a group of people who are just like, whoa, everybody's just crazy. This is just nuts. This is just babble. This is just, and these guys think they're hearing them pray in their own language and they've had too much wine. Everybody's just drunk. But it's a big thing and it was loud, right? It was loud. There was this, this rushing wind and then there's this fire crackling and then there's people praying loudly in your language and you're hearing it. And then everybody's talking and they're amazed and they're wondering what is happening. And what's happening is this is the beginning of this thing that Jesus talked about, this thing called the church. This, the book of Acts, the author of Acts, Luke tells us this is where it begins. This is when the assembly goes from simply being a group of, of people hanging out trying to follow Jesus to an assembly that has been granted a, a, a certain authority. The Holy Spirit has come and they now pray in other languages. So this is happening and Jews from all over the world are here and they're witnessing the Holy Spirit, which was promised by the Messiah, was said would come with power, but they don't understand what's happening. They don't know what they're seeing. It's all kind of locked to them. It's mysterious. And then somebody speaks. Then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour my spirit out on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. And the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the founding of the church. This is the moment. He's showing that what Joel prophesied was the church. A church where everybody has the Holy Spirit in them. Everybody has the ability to speak on behalf of God. That's phenomenally bizarre to them. And it's a church in one sense where everybody has equal access and authority. And yet as we see this founding of the church, do we see Peter in a prominent position? We do. I mean, he speaks, right? He's the one who explains it to them. You could argue he's the one who unlocks the keys for them. He's the one who brings the keys to unlock the kingdom of heaven. He says to them, you're all welcome, but this is where it is. But, but hold that because there's more. Interestingly enough, we jump ahead about six chapters, we get to Acts 8, and an interesting thing happens. So in Acts 8, what's happened is the persecution has come, and the apostles are scattered. Remember, we talked about Philip, he ended up in Samaria. Uh, when we talked about Philip as the apostle, he ended up in Samaria, and he starts sharing the gospel with Samaritans, and, and he, he preaches, and people begin to receive the Lord. And then it says this, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. And when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. And they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So once again, we see Peter is foundational. And this is to like a whole distinct group being welcomed into the church. Remember the first time in Acts 2, it's Jews from all over the world, converted Jews and Jews, but Jews. But this is a different group, this is Samaritans. We've talked about the Samaritans a little bit, how they weren't regarded by the Jews we saw in Acts 2 as real Jews. But now they're being reached. So it's like another group. And I think in order to show that they are really part of the church, it's just an aside, Jesus does the same thing with the Holy Spirit that he did with the first group, just to show that this group is not any less real. This doesn't happen anytime anyone gets saved in Scripture, but I think this is an important, crucial moment, this this idea of the Holy Spirit coming through the laying on of hands and coming with significant signs and power is because it wants to say the Samaritans are as much a part of the church 
as the Jews. And who is foundational in this introduction? Who comes to sort of unlock the keys for them? Peter. So once again, we see, okay, that could be, but hold on, there's one more. Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. Let's be clear. If you're a centurion, what does that mean? It means you're a Roman, means you're a Gentile, means you work for the Romans. There was a man named Cornelius, a centurion. Centurion literally means a, a commander of 100 men. Century is 100. Centurion means 100 men. A centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. So he's a devout Gentile. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, and Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. And he told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. And about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. And he saw heaven opened and something like a large sheep being let down to the earth by its four corners. And it contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I do love the fact that even after Jesus is resurrected and clearly in heaven and God, Peter's still willing to argue with him. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. And while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. And they called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. And Peter, while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. And Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? And the men replied, we have come from Cornelius, the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. And a holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. And then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. And the next day, Peter started out with them and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting him and he called together his relatives and close friends. And as Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. You can understand that reaction. I mean, this is a messenger that an angel promised would come. I would be very respectful of that individual. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said, I'm only a man. While talking with them, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Interesting. Basically, Peter's saying, if God had not shown me, I would have refused your offer to come. So then Cornelius, I'm not going to read it because he tells the story we already know. Cornelius tells Peter what we already read happened to Cornelius. I had a dream. I had a vision. An angel told me you were coming. I asked you to come. Now you came. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And then Peter launches into a sermon for all the friends, for all the family, for all the relatives. This is a centurion. I think he's got a lot of friends and family. I think this is a very large gathering. And Peter preaches a sermon to all of them just as he did at Pentecost. And, when, and then it says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. So this is like a third group. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus starts with the Jews who were waiting for the Messiah. And he says, the church has come and the Holy Spirit comes to give them that authority and that power. And then the Samaritans get saved. But Jesus, God wants to say, you are not a second class of Christian. You're not a second class of church. No, Christian wasn't a term at this point. You're not a second class of, of Jewish believers of, of, in the Messiah. You're not a second class. You're equal. And to do that, he had Peter come and sort of bestow on them the same authority. The Holy Spirit comes to them. And now even the Gentiles... Peter comes to kind of confer the keys of the kingdom to them. 
to unlock to them the, the entrance to heaven. It says the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles. I think astonished is probably a soft word, right? I think some of them were probably incredibly unhappy. And some of them are thrilled. Just depends on where they were coming from, right? But it's just either way, it's, this is not what they had seen. This is not what they had visioned. So I think the receiving the Holy Spirit with certain visible signs, it's an important part of each of these moments precisely because what God is revealing is that the gates of the kingdom are being opened more and more and more widely. If you think of this idea of I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, we think of Peter or whoever he's saying this to as a gatekeeper. And that, we normally think of gatekeeper's job is to do what? Keep people out. But that's not what we're seeing happen in these passages. We're not seeing Peter come to groups and say, "Mm, not you. Nope, not you. In fact, the gate is being opened so widely that God knows he has to help Peter understand it. He has to say to Peter, don't say no to anybody. If I say they're clean, they're clean. I don't care what you think or what you've heard or what your theology is, what you even think I said. I want you to know I'm capable of making the most unclean animal, the most unclean person pure. Don't turn your nose up at that. I think this is why Peter is willing to go into Cornelius' house. I think to us it sounds like a funny thing to say, I'm only a man myself, but I actually think that's an important moment. Here's this man kneeling before him, a man who has oppressed his people a man of the same kind of men that Peter not so long ago pulled a sword out and cut the ear off of because they were the enemy. And yet Peter, instead of enjoying even for a moment the kneeling of the centurion says, stand up, we're the same. We're the same. And so if there is a gatekeeping going on here for Peter, it's a weird gatekeeping. It's a gatekeeping that is showing the gates are open. It's like the job he has with the keys are to open the gates and keep them open to let people know you're welcome. So it is true. When you look at these passages, there is some truth to the idea that Peter's foundational to the church, no? And there is some truth to the idea that Peter has some authority here because he's involved in each of these moments where people become part of the kingdom of heaven. True? So I think it is possible to call Peter foundational to the church, and I think it's possible to see him as being a steward of the keys of the kingdom, and that all makes a certain sort of sense. But let's go back to our initial passage where we started, and let's notice something important that we neglected, and I'll admit intentionally on my part, because I like to lead you into these things. Something that we neglected before, because we stopped reading a little bit too early, What's interesting is this, this passage about authority. He says you have the keys of the kingdom of heaven and what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven and what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. He says that to Peter here and he says it in that singular you. But guess what? Two chapters later, Jesus says the same thing to all of the apostles and he uses the plural you. Matthew 18. He says a number of things, but let's read it. He says... If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. There's that word church again, which doesn't appear very often in Jesus's words. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. We have lots of discussions about what that means. Might not mean what we think it means. Think about the way Jesus treated pagans and tax collectors. That's an interesting statement. But he goes on. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he says this. Again, I truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. So sandwiched in between two passages which you may think are unrelated, we have him repeat this idea 
of authority that what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And this time when he speaks of this authority, he's not speaking just to Peter. He's speaking to all of the apostles and he clearly means it for all of them. What's more is I think if we really look, we'll see that this is not sandwiched in between two two unrelated ideas. In fact, I think this whole paragraph, this whole passage is one very related idea. It's all about authority of a community rather than authority of an individual. What does it say to do if you have something you can't mediate yourself? Well, it says you bring it to one or two others, but what if they can't mediate it? Then what do you do? Do you go find the priest as would have been done in the Israelite world? When you need a mediation, you went to the priest or you went to the prophet. There was an individual who had authority to do the mediation. This is actually a very weird sort of mediation because who's supposed to do it? The entire community. That doesn't sound very efficient. (laughs) In fact, you can argue if it's effective. (laughs) But whether you can argue if it's effective or not, that's what it says. It says that the authority to mediate in this area is left not to an individual, but to the church. Then he goes on and says, because whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Because what you as a community do has authority. It makes a difference. It has a corollary in the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, where two of you gather together in my name, there I am with you, and and says, if you ask anything, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Clearly, he doesn't mean that God only listens to prayers when you can get a petition or enough people together to, to, to get his attention. Clearly, he listens even if you pray by yourself. But he's saying that it doesn't take a large community. Even if it's a small community, there's an authority in that prayer. There's a communal authority that doesn't exist for the individual. And if in this passage, if that's what this is all about, and he uses the same phrase he used to Peter, then clearly when he talks about the kings to the kingdom of heaven, he does not intend to give that authority to one individual. So why say it to Peter first? I think the easiest way to understand this, and by the way, the fact that this is in the same gospel, so it's not even like two different gospel writers had two different perspectives. It's like Matthew is recording both of these conversations. And what Matthew reports is that first, Jesus has this private conversation with Peter in which he says, hey, you're going to have this authority. But Jesus doesn't mean you alone. He's just talking to Peter. If I'm speaking to one of you in the church about things that are true of the church, I might speak only to you, but it doesn't mean only you have that responsibility. So he says it to Peter. And then when all the apostles are together, he says it again. He says, you all have this authority. So from this context, when you look back at the Acts passages, you also begin to notice some other things that I intentionally didn't point out first time through. For one thing, do you notice that Peter is actually never alone in any of these examples? In Acts 2, it says, Peter with who? The 11 stood up and spoke. He may be the most verbal, he may be the most articulate, or he may just be the quickest to his feet. All of these could be true of Peter, right? He may be the least bashful. He may be the most courageous. It could be a very positive thing. But it says he's with the other 11. This is a thing they all are granting authority to. When they went to the Samaritans, does it say they sent Peter by himself? No, it says they sent Peter and John. That's interesting. And guess what? They sent Peter and John after who had already converted them? Philip. So Philip also had the keys to the kingdom there, did he not? He's the one who brought them to the kingdom. Yes, Peter and John had a very special moment in the church where they went to sort of officially let everybody in the world know these are actually part of the church. And that was important, but it wasn't Peter by himself. When Peter goes to Cornelius' family, here's a really interesting one. Yes, Peter goes by himself, but who really brought all of Cornelius' friends to the kingdom? Cornelius. You mean a Gentile could have keys to the kingdom? Actually, isn't that kind of the point of the whole story? <laughs> that yes, a Gentile can have equal access. Also, this idea that everybody gets the Holy Spirit. See, for the Israelites, they knew the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was not a new understanding for them. 
But what they understood about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is that whenever there was somebody special, somebody who had special authority, a king, a prophet, a priest, somebody who had to do some major work, right? A judge, someone who had to do something significant, they needed the power of God. And the Holy Spirit would come and grant them that power so they could exercise their specific authority and responsibility. And it was never a communal thing. The Holy Spirit came to one person, usually temporarily. You have some very unique examples in the Old Testament like David and Elijah, some really rare people who seem to have the Holy Spirit their whole life, but they were seen as very rare. And you have most of the Israelites who never experienced that. So to have this moment where they're experiencing that the Holy Spirit is going to every single Jew and then to every single Samaritan and then to every single Gentile who embraces the gospel, it is in itself this message about authority, which is astonishing. Why were the Jews astonished when the Holy Spirit, when the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit? Because the Jews had to wait thousands of years for something like that to happen. And the Gentiles had to wait, I don't know, a couple days, 30 days <laughs> to see something amazing like that. The whole story of the founding of the church is not about authority being narrowed down to one man. It's about authority being granted to everyone. It's about the keys of the kingdom not becoming more and more restrictive, but the gates being opened wider and wider and wider. And it doesn't even really matter if we like that version. That's the version scripture tells. The second thing we see is the nature of Peter's sermons. If Peter is, in one sense, giving the keys to the kingdom, if he is opening those gates wider, how's he doing it? Does he talk about himself? Of course not. What does he focus on? Does he even focus on rules and policies and procedures? These are the things you must do to be part of our congregation. You mean to act more like Jews? You Samaritans, you were wrong all along. Now you got to become more like us. Why did the Samaritans accept the gospel? Because it never was said to them by Philip or Jesus or anyone else, you first have to become more like the Jews you disagree with. <laughs> he didn't say that at all. No, his, his sermons don't focus on rules and policies and procedures. They don't focus on the gatekeeping issues. They don't focus on what the keys are. They don't focus on Peter as the foundation. The sermons are really clear. Acts 2, 22 through 24, 36 and 38 through 39. I don't have the whole sermon. I've just taken pieces out to show you. You can read the whole thing. It says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. I find it fascinating that Peter is already prophesying what's going to happen that he clearly didn't understand yet. Do you see that? He says this gospel is going to be for everyone. He's already opening the gates. But he doesn't even understand it. But the emphasis is on Jesus. Acts 8. What does he tell them, the Samaritans? But when they believed Philip... As he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Guess what? Peter didn't even preach the sermon to the Samaritans. Philip did. But what did he preach? He preached Jesus. He didn't preach Peter, did he? He didn't say, you want to be part of the church, you got to come through Peter first. No, he said, you want to be part of the church, you come through Jesus. And then Peter came and said, yep, that's right. <laughs> How about Acts 10? You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ who is Lord of all. That's just a short snippet. Same message. So knowing this, knowing that what seems to be happening in the foundation of the church is that the gates of the kingdom are being opened wider and wider, that authority is being given to more people rather than fewer. Let's take a look back at that initial passage again. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church 
and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered the disciples not to tell anyone he was the Messiah. It seems pretty clear the beginning and end of this passage are talking about the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. I think when Peter says, you are Peter, you are the rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. I think it's reasonable based on everything else we've seen about the founding of the church to understand this statement, not to be saying that Peter himself is the rock, but the declaration that Peter made is the rock. That Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus himself is the rock. I'm not taking away from this the fact that in some sense this still makes Peter the rock. In fact, I think Jesus would say anyone who makes this declaration is also a rock. We'll see that in a second. But the real rock, the real cornerstone, the real foundation stone to the church is that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the message that's preached over and over. And that's the keys of the kingdom. That message, that understanding. And that message isn't limited to people of a certain authority. You have that message. Like Philip, nothing stops you from giving that message. Like Cornelius, nothing stops you from giving that message. Like Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila and so many others that we see throughout the rest of the book of Acts, nothing stops you from giving that message. But it's interesting, at the end of this, he says he orders his disciples not to tell anyone he was the Messiah. Why not? You know why not? Because it wasn't time yet for the church. In other words, don't lay that cornerstone yet because we're not ready to build on it yet. (laughs) That's coming. There's a community which will come which will have the authority because of the Holy Spirit, a community which will have an authority, a community in which everyone is an equal participant with no one more indispensable or important than anyone else. There will be a structure There will be differing roles and responsibilities, and to that extent, you can call that authority. But authority to enter the kingdom will be granted to all. And authority to invite people to the kingdom will be granted to all. And when you do a simple thing, like share the gospel, and people receive it, guess what happens? It happens in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. It's astonishing, really, that authority to extend the keys of the kingdom are granted to everyone. But if you're unsure that what I'm saying is true, I think the best way to resolve this debate, in my opinion, is to see how Peter understood it. How did Peter understood what Jesus told him? Did Peter think he was the authority of the church? Did he think he was the Pope who would lead us forward? Did he think he had the keys to the kingdom? Did he think that authority had been placed upon him for all these things? I want to read a passage from 1 Peter. These are Peter's own words. These are his explanation. And I want to read it as our benediction tonight, much as I read the prayer last week as our benediction. So once again, when I'm done reading this, we'll just stop. We'll let the last words be God's words tonight. How's that for a pithy statement? But I do want to prep you before I read it because there's a lot of words here. So I want you to be paying attention to certain things. As I read through this, I want you to note that Peter flatly declares that Jesus is the cornerstone. That Jesus is the founding rock. Peter goes on to further declare that all of us who believe in the Messiah are ourselves Petra. We are like him, rocks. Not lesser rocks than Peter, the same rocks. The only rock that's more significant is the cornerstone. And that's Jesus, not Peter. I want you to notice that he also goes on to declare that we are not only all rocks, but we are all priests. Who are priests? Priests are those who have the keys and the authority to decide who gets to enter the kingdom. This phrase, what you bind on earth and keys of the kingdom of heaven and what you loose in heaven, there are some who believe, in fact, that this is not even a foreign phrase to Peter, that Jesus didn't make it up. He borrowed it from a phrasing that was already being used by, guess who? The Pharisees to describe their own role. It's as if Jesus is saying, the Pharisees think they have the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Guess what? I'm giving it to everybody. <laughs> And that's why Peter says, we're all priests. We all have that authority, all of us. 
You are the rock. You are the church. Really, it's another way to describe what we try to do here at Focus, right? It's a recognition of our status as God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We believe that we are an assembly with purpose and authority. And where two or three of us gather together in the name of Christ, there's power. That's why we believe our focus groups are church. They are the ecclesia. They are the assembly with purpose and with the keys to the kingdom of heaven, with the Holy Spirit and authority and access for all of us. Together, we reflect the glory of Christ. Together, we exercise authority as ambassadors of Christ. Together, says Peter, we bring people out of darkness into his wonderful light. Note these things. And listen closely, and I'll put it up on the screen as Peter speaks to us. The reference, if you're interested to look at it later, is 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture, it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is, now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.